0: Be sure to follow Send Me To Sleep on your preferred podcast player, so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Welcome to Send Me To Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, we'll be taking a stroll down the woodland path with naturalist author Winthrop Packard. We'll be entering into the month of April, strolling along the brook and exploring the wonderful woodland of New England. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy. And your breath soften. As we settle in. For a peaceful night's sleep. The Brook in April The pond is a mile long, but it is shallow, with a level bottom that was once a peaked meadow and the water, holding some of this peat in solution has a fine amber tinge. It is as if the sphagnums that wrought for ages in the bog and died to give it its black level held in reserve vast stores of their own rich wine-reds and mingled them with the yellows of hemlock heartwood and the soft tan of marsh grasses that lie dead all robed in funeral black, at the bottom of the pond. By what mystery of alchemy the water compounds during its winter wait under the thick ice, this amethystine glow in its pellucid depths, I do not know, but the spring sunlight always shows it as it sends its shafts down into the quivering shallows and it creams the foam that fluffs beneath the gate of the old dam and flows seaward. This gate is always lifted a little, and the stream never fails. In spring, its brimming volume floods the meadows and roars down miniature rocky gorges, a soothing lullaby of a roar that you may hear crooning at your window of an April night to surely sing you to sleep. In summer, the gatesman comes along and puts a mute on the stream by dropping the gate a little, and it lisps and pearls through the little gorges, slipping from one rock-bound pool to another. In April, the suckers come up, breasting the flood from another pond a half-mile downstream, to spawn great, sturdy, lithe, shiny-sided fellows that are, at this time of year, almost as beautiful and as alert as salmon, weighing sometimes five or six pounds. The same intoxication which makes the flood froth and dance and shout as it tumbles down the steeps from meadow to meadow seems to thrill in their veins and give them strength to cleave an arrow flight through the quivering rapids and gamble up the falls with an exultant agility that seems strange in this fish that is so sluggish and dull on the pond bottom in midsummer. Adam's ale is brewed the year round, but it is the spring drought that works miracles of agility in the blood of sombre creatures. Winterfishes are like some middle-class Englishmen sitting glum and motionless in their stools. Only when tapster spring draws the ale and the barmaid brooks dance blithely down with foaming mugs do we learn how jovial and athletic they may be. Thus the suckers, suddenly waking to exuberant activity, swim the frothy current Leap the miniature falls like gleaming salmon and congregate just below the dam. Some years the Gateman has kindly instincts at just the psychological moment and comes over and shuts down the gate of a Saturday afternoon in the presence of many boys in whose veins also froths the exultant foam of spring joy. Then, indeed, as low-water spell Waterloo for the suckers. In the shoaling current, they flee downstream, seeking the deeper pools and hiding under stones in water-worn hollows wherever they can find refuge. There is a crude instrument, formerly a familiar output of the local blacksmith, known as a sucker spear. It is composed of two cast-off horseshoes, one being straightened and welded across the other in the middle of the band. This gives a rough imitation of Neptune's trident, with the three prongs of good half-inch broad and usually sharpened to a cutting edge. Mounted on a long pole, it is complete, and its possession makes of a boy a vengeful Poseidon, having dominion over the shallows of the brook. Boys who know no better because they have been taught by their elders that this is the way to do it. Spear suckers with their instruments. A handy youngster can guillotine a five pound fish and fork its limp remnants up on the bank with it. Even the boy who does it, though he whoops with the wild delight of bloody conquest, knows that this is not sport. There is a better way to catch suckers, and he who has once learned it willingly discards the crude instrument of the blacksmith for the fine touch of the true sportsman. He matches boy against fish and feels the man thrill through his marrow every time he wins. It is the same game the great John Ridd learned from his primitive forebears on the west of England's moors whereby he went forth to tickle-trout in the icy stream and was led into the enchanted valley where dwelt huge outlaws and Lorna Dune. Bare-legged and bare-armed, you wade into the icy water and slip your hands gently under the big stones at the bottom, wherever there are crevices into which a fish might enter. If you have the requisite finesse of touch, Experience will soon tell you what it is you feel beneath in the darkness of the watery cave. It may be nothing but the fine play of currents across your fingers, in which all sensitiveness and expectation seem to center. It is wonderful how much soul crowds down into your fingertips when they feel for something you cannot see in places where things may bite. There may be a turtle there, and if so, you have to leave to withdraw. It may be an eel, and you need not mind, for the eel will take care of himself. You can no more grasp him than you can quiver currents. It is customary to expect water snakes, and there is a finesse of delight about the dread that the expectation inspires that is just a little more than mortal. Orpheus, seeking dead Eurydice, must have turned the corner on the way down with some such feeling. Perhaps it is because the dread is groundless that it is so deific. It has no basis in the senses, but is purely a creature of the finer imaginings. The water snake is harmless if by and chance you could be there. At the sucker time of year, he is still sleeping his winter sleep, tucked away in some rock crevice off the upper bank, safe from flood and frost. If you prod crudely, the big fish will take flight and rush to another hiding place, but if you are wise and careful enough, you will feel something swaying in the current and stroking your fingers like the soft touch of a feather duster. It is the big fellow's tail. And you will soon learn better than to grab it. The muscular strength of one of these big fish is beyond belief. Howsoever tight your grip on him here, he will swing his body from side to side with such force and swiftness that he will writhe from your hold before you can get him out of the water. That is not the way to do it. Instead, you cunningly slip your hand gently along from his tail towards his head. You will likely go over your rolled-up sleeve, perhaps it will be necessary for you to plunge your shoulder and even your head in an effort to reach far enough. Having discounted the Plutonian water snakes, you will find this but giving zest to the game. Indeed, it is doubtful if you know that it has happened until it is all over. Your palm slides gingerly over the dorsal fin and goes on till you feel the gentle waving of the pectorals. Then suddenly you grip a thumb and a finger into the gills, showing the iron hand through the velvet, and with one strong surge lift your fish from beneath his rock and fling him high upon the bank. There is a fundamental joy in this kind of fishing. That you can get in no other. If there were fish in the River of Paradise, Adam caught them for Eve in this way. I've always been sorry that Big John Ridd found nothing but fingering trout on his way up the little stream that led to the Dune Valley. He should have tackled our brook in April. Along the stream today, noting the pussy willows all out in spring garments of pearl grey, and the alders swaying and sifting yellow dust from their open stamens, I passed the spot where Bose and I met as early a spring run of fish as often occurs. Bose would corroborate it if he could, but, unfortunately, Bose is somewhat dead, as much so as a dog of his spirit and imagination can be. His bones lie decidedly buried, under the great oak where he loved to sit and think about foxes, but I'm not so sure about the rest of it. If there are any happy hunting grounds where the souls of game flee away, I warrant Bose leads the pack. He was a full-blooded foxhound, deep-chested, musical, lop-eared, and he didn't know a fox from a buff cockchin He hunted continually but rarely on a real trail. His nose was for visions. It was on a first day of April that we came out of the door together, and Bose took one sniff, lifted his head, bayed musically, and was off into the pasture with me following, both of us ripe for any adventure. There was the smell of spring in the air. Indeed, I was not sure, but it was the green-robed Violet-crowned goddess whom the dogs set forth to hunt. If so, I was more than glad to follow, for the winters seemed long in my town. We know that the sun god is pursuing Daphne northward. We have signs of her in the yearning of willow twigs and the shy blooming of her If she should already be hiding in some sunny, sheltered nook of the pasture, Bose would be as likely to go after her as any other vision. March had gone out like a lamb, trailing a shorn fleece of mists behind him, mists that morning sun tinted with opal fires that burned out after a little and left pale blue ashes smeared in the hollows and blown soft against the distant hills. All through the air, thrilled the glamour of those newborn hopes that attended the goddess, and I wanted to give tongue with Bose when I found him quartering the barbary slope of the upper pasture with clumsy gallop. He had led me plump into fairyland at the first plunge, for the brown leaves of last year rustled with tread of brownies, and I came up in time to see a fat gnome rolling along, humping his shoulders and jiggling with laughter before the uproarous onslaught of the dog, turning at the burrow's mouth to grin in the teeth of eager jaws and vanish into thin air as they clipped. A woodchuck? So Hodge would call it, seeing according to his kind. Probably Bose knew it for a fox, a silver-grey at least, according to his foxhound dreams. I myself knew that spring glamour was on all the woodland, and that this was a round-porched gnome, guardian of buried treasure, out for an April day frolic, and going back reluctantly to his post after a moment's fun with the dog. As for the brownies, they were signs, or rather, forerunners, pacemakers to spring. I could see the little black eyes and droll pointed nose of them as they worked eagerly all about in the shrubbery, passing the word that the goddess might arrive at any moment and that it was time to dress for her. Now they whispered it to terminal buds, and now to lateral, but mostly they put their brown heads down among the leaves, giving the message to bulb and corm, tuber and rootstock. I could hear them calling all about, a quaint little elfin note of teesp-teesp, and anon one would turn a roguish handspring and vanish, thus hocus-pocusing himself to the next northward grove. Busy brownies they were, hopper my thumbs clad in rufous-brown feather coats that so harmonized with the dead leaves among which they worked. it was difficult to see them, except when they moved. Ornithologists, bound by the letter of their knowledge, would, I dare say, name these foxes sparrows, but even these might have hesitated and forgotten their literalness, looking into newborn April's smiling face that blue-mist morning, out trailing the spring with bows. Then, much like the brownies, Bose vanished. He seemed to have lost the trail. Nor was my scent keener, though all about were signs. The maple twigs were decorated with rosettes of red and yellow in honour of her coming. Birch twigs reddened with them, and the woodland that had been grey was fairly blushing with telltale colours. Over on an open, sandy hillside... The cinquefoil buds were beginning to curl upwards, and in the heart of violet leaves, faint hints of blue made you think of sleepy children, just opening a little of one eye at promise of morning. Here, too, I was conscious of a faint, ethereal, fine perfume that seemed to float suddenly to my senses, as if it had come over the treetops from the south from upstream came the babble of the brook like dainty laughter. If I had heard the swish of silken garments floating away in the direction from which these came, I had not been surprised. Eagerly, I turned and followed where they led me. Soon, I heard Bose again, a half-mile behind me. He, too, had caught the trail. Baying eagerly, He galloped by a few minutes later, interjecting into his uproar by some strange method of dog elocution, a whine of recognition, and an invitation to follow. So he went on down the pasture. No leaf bud had opened, though many were agape, ready to burst with the pulse of new life that throbbed through the twigs and heightened their colours. The swamp blueberry bushes and the wild smile were the greener for it, just as the maples and the birches were the redder. With your ear to the bark, you might hear the thrumming of the sap in the cambium layers, practicing a second to the drone of bees to come a little later, and still the fairy fine scent lured me, and I could hear Bose's voice, eager to coherence, just ahead. If you did not know about his visions, you would surely think he had a fox in his jaw and was shaking him. Down a sunny slope, robed in diaphanous grey-green of bursting birch buds, the fairy odour led me to a little bower on the bank, where for a moment I saw the nymph herself stand, rosy pink, slender and sweet gowned in the birch-bud colour, all shimmered with the yellow of alder pollen, drawn in filmy gauze about her. Strange goblins in silvery brown danced in grotesque gambols at her feet, while behind the bank I heard the splashing of bows in shallow water, Frenzied howls of excitement and ecstasy followed each time by another of the clumsy goblins somersaulting up from below to join the dance. Fairyland and Goblin Town had indeed come together in celebration of the arrival of spring. On the threshold of this realm, I trod a moment, bewildered, and then, stumbling broke the spell with a hasty exclamation the enchantment vanished like a dream standing by the brookside i saw only the homely world again yet it was a strange enough sight up at the dam the gate had suddenly been closed and a dozen 3 pound fish on their way up to spawn had been marooned in the shallow water these bows were shaking up in the wildest delight and tossing up on the bank, where they danced in clumsy, fish-out-of-water dismay. These were the dancing goblins, nor had I been very far wrong about Daphne. There she stood still, slender and dainty, only just as when pursued by Apollo of old, she had turned into a shrub. There she stood, the Daphne Mazarium of the elder botanists, the clustering blooms of pink sending forth their faint, sweet odour that had come so far down the pasture to Bose and me and sent us hunting visions. To be sure, it was the first of April, but the joke was not all on us, for Bose had for once found real game, albeit such as Foxhound never hunted before and I had found the spring. Two bluebirds, house-hunting among the willows, caroled in confirmation of it, and Apollo himself, shining through the grey mist of the birch twigs, kissed Daphne rapturously. She was so sweet that I did not blame him. As for Bose, he actually came up and licked the bushling twigs, then in sudden confusion had been caught in such sentimental actions, tore off on the make-believe trail of more visions, leaving me to rescue his gambling goblins and put them back into their native water. Explorations Today, I reminded myself forcibly of Samuel Pickwick, Esquire, GCMPC, whose paper entitled Speculations on the Source of the Hampstead Ponds was received with such enthusiasm on the part of the Pickwick Club, for I have made new discoveries on the sources of Ponkapog Pond. These are quite as astounding to me as were the Hampstead revelations to the Pickwick Club, and just as those sent to Mr. Pickwick and his friends forth on new voyages, So these led me to a hitherto undiscovered country. In spite of our increasing population and our progressive business activity, there are portions of eastern Massachusetts towns that are forgotten. Often these are large tracts where the foot of man rarely treads and the creatures of the wilderness roam and prey, breed and die, undisturbed by civilization. They may hear the hoot of the factory whistle, morning, noon, and evening, or the faint echoes of the distant roar of trains, but they give no heed. Their world is the wilderness, and their problem that of living with their forest neighbors. Man hardly enters into their arrangements. Now and then, one of these tracts has a past that is related to humanity, though the casual passer would never suspect it. The wilderness sweeps over the trail of man gleefully, and his monuments must be built high and strong, or they will be swept away with rapidity that is startling. It is only by perpetual efforts that we hold on to our landmarks. The rain will come in between the shingles, and, beginning with the roof, sweep your house into the cellar just a mass of brown mould before you know it then the frost and sun tumble the cellar wall in upon it, and where once your proud dwelling stood is a grass-grown hollow. Today's generation trips on the capstones of what was the tower of its ancestors and thinks it's merely a projection of the earth's rib, which it is and to which it has returned. I fancy every old Massachusetts town has these woodland places that were once the hopeful clearings of early settlers. Now and then, roaming the deep wood where only the creatures of the primal forest seem to have freehold tenor, I find an alien as strayed from the elder years, a hermit of the wood and of our own time. I know a purple lilac that dwells thus serenely. Miles from present-day habitations, in a scrub forest that was fifty years ago, a stretch of cathedral pines. Only long search showed me the faint hollow in the brown earth which was once the narrow cellar of a wee house. No record of an early householder here remains other than that planted by the hopeful housewife's hand, the lilac scrub. For more than a century it has held the ground where its fellow pioneers planted it holding close within its pinky heartwood memories of English lanes white with hawthorn and, far beyond these, indistinct recollections of rose-perfumed Persian gardens, the home of its race. Perhaps upon its ancestral root rested the feet of Omar Khayyam, where he wrote, And when, like her, O oh, Saki, you shall pass, among the guests' star-scattered on the grass, and in your blissful errand reach the spot where I made one, turn down an empty glass. Perhaps within the fragrance of a blossom that sprang from the same stock, old Cromwell and his Ironsides paused some May morning and breathed deep and sang a surly hymn. We propagate the lilac from the root, not the seed, and the same sap has flowed through the veins of the present strain for a thousand years. A whiff of lilac perfume in a woodland tangle next month, and out of the wilderness we step, from one ancient garden to another, back by centuries into the pleasant place of a world long gone. To many a New England child, The smell of lilacs brings homesickness, and he does not know why. It is because it is the May odour of the vanished home garden, not only of Miles and Priscilla of Plymouth, but of a thousand generations of his own stock before them. The woodland of today's discoveries is not such. I do not believe pioneer ever stoned a cellar in these depths, and if the Native American set his teepee here, it was only in passing. Now and then the harrying hand of man has cut off its greater growth and let the sunlight in on its roots, that the adventurous buds may have a chance, and newer and stronger trunks tower upwards eventually. But the shadows that dapple its brown-leaf mold carry no dreams of human domination. The vexation of axe and gun, and even the searing scar of flame, are only minor incidents in the great work of the wood, whose ultimate purpose no man knows. We see the rocks disintegrated and the hollows filled with richer soil, that the forests may grow taller and more surely shelter the gentler things of the earth. We find it holding back the waters in its cunningly contrived box and hiding medicinal plants in its hollows, waiting always with benediction in its leaves for comforting of weary men. But we feel when we know the woods best that these, too, are but its casual benefits. Its great purpose lies deeper, and the more we seek it, the better we know we are. Great men come out of the forests of the earth. If they are not born there, they seek the place before coming to their greatness. Lincoln Hughes rail, Washington surveys and scouts, and Roosevelt ranches in the western wilderness. Perhaps it is for these and their kin that the woods exist. It is always Peter the Hermit that leads the Crusade, and without Crusades, the world were a poor place. It seems as if all our prophets must wrestle at least forty days in the wilderness before coming forth with brows white with the mark of immortality. It lies at the southeast corner of the pond, beginning at the little bogs, from which it springs abruptly. Along the water's edge of these bogs, picnickers row their boats all summer long and catch fish and eat sandwiches. Inland, a foot or two, the duck hunter in the autumn treads precariously along the quaking surface with his eyes on the margin, or perhaps on the ducks that swim in the open pond, but rarely does anyone penetrate the bog-carpeted swamp of great cedars just back of this quaking margin. And this is strange. The passion for exploration is born in all hearts we are prompted to go to Tibet, or seek the sources of the Nile, or penetrate the jungles that lie between the Amazon and the Orinoco. I have felt this impulse strongly myself, and longing for distant lands have passed unnoticed this opportunity right at hand for penetrating an untrodden wilderness. With most of us, the undiscovered country lies just a step off the beaten track. So across the rolling bog and into the twilight greenness beneath the cedars, I sailed today, venturing as Columbus did over a known sea to an unknown and thence to a new world. One where straight, limbless cedar trunks stand close like temple columns, under a grey-green roof of twigs and leaves. All the upper tones are grey and green, for this is the world of the mosses and lichens. The ground is built for them, and the temple columns are so covered with their arabesques and bas-reliefs, so daintily frescoed and carved that it seems as if here were a museum of all designs for beautifying of interiors that ever occurred. And as all the tree trunks are grey and green, till the texture and colour of bark is hardly to be discerned, so the carpeting of the floor of this temple and the upholstering of its furniture in brown and green. The thin rays of the sun that filter through here and there are greenish gold, till the whole gives an underwater atmosphere to the place and you walk about as a diver might on the sea bottom, with things new and strange floating at every hand. Mosses in the ordinary woodland we are apt to pass with unseeing eye. They decorate rocks and trees, dead stumps and earth with such unobtrusive good taste that we come back feeling the beauty of the woodland and not at all knowing what made it. Some fence corner or group of trees or shrubs or a stump that has touched us with its beauty, and so well dressed it is in its moss clothes that we have not seen them at all, but have come away only with the recollection of how well the rock or the stump looked, and we cannot say whether it wore a plaid or a check, or just a plain goods. In this swamp, however, it is as if the whole woodland wardrobe were hung up for inspection, an easter opening of all kinds of woodware. Here, the Asnir barbata trails its old man's beard from the cedar limbs, well up in the arches above the pillars, its drooping softness having the effect of delicate tapestry. Clinging lichens, those delicate unions of algal cells and fond fungi, paint the northerly sides of the tree trunks all the way down, while the freer-growing fringe or fleck the southern exposures. Parmielas to the north, cetrarias and sticters to the south might well guide the wanderers, giving him the points of the compass and leading him thus to the path again. Underfoot, the sphagnums build the bog and hold chief sway, but other common varieties dispute the footing with them. Here is the acuter folia, with its pointed leaves, giving the tufts the appearance of a bunch of pointed, petalled chrysanthemums, the greens and purples softly shading into one another and showing a fine contrast with the drier, yellower portions of the plant. Here, too, is the elderwise-like squarensum, in its loosely crowded clusters of bluish-green, and the robust simbifolum. All these grow from their own debris in the wettest portions of the footing. Wherever there is in this many-coloured and lovely carpet, A dead cedar trunk, the dainty cedar moss creeping everywhere, has occupied the space with its delicate, fern-like leaves, making of all ugly, rotten wood the loveliest furnishing imaginable for these solemn, twilight spaces. Cushion mosses pad with their bluish-green velvet hassocks here and there, and, sitting on one of them, That I might put all my wit into seeing, I noted for the first time, though growing all about me, in fact, a moss that I had never seen before the Neum. I dare say the Neum punctantum is a common bog moss. Very likely I have trampled it ruthlessly underfoot before this, in following some more showy denizen of the deep woods. But to find it thus, exploring a new swamp for the first time. It gave me as great pleasure as I might have had in finding a new orchid hiding about the sources of the Orinoco. It was the Smagnums that led me to the Brookside and caused me to recall that lusty scientist, Mr. Pickwick, and his discovery of the sources of the Hampstead Pond. And while I stood and wondered, I saw a second brook, only a little further on, also flowing downward into the sphagnum and losing itself in the bog to pass beneath the cedar roots and moss debris and enter the pond. Some ancient traveller, perhaps Marco Polo, passing from Babylon to Baghdad, coming first upon the Euphrates and then the Tigris may have felt some of the amazement and delight which I had in this discovery. Never before had I known of a brook entering the pond. It had always been a sheet of water, self-contained and sufficient in itself, fed, I thought, by springs beneath its own surface. I had paddled by and trampled over the mouths of these two brooks. A hundred times, and never knew before why the pond always smiled and dimpled as I went by. No wonder it laughs. It has kept that same joke on 99 of a hundred of the people who frequent it, and I'm not sure there is another hundred. It seems as if all the woodland burst into guffaws and laughter now that the joke was out and there was no further need of keeping quiet about it. The cedars rocked in the west wind with suppressed merriment, and a couple of red squirrels snickered like schoolchildren and tore up and down the lichen-covered trunks and fell off into a swamp birch and had hardly strength to hold on. So breathless were they. A pair of crows looking up nesting material poor horde right out over my head, till they had to stop flapping and sail, they were so weak from it, and a whole flock of chickadees tittered all along behind my back for a quarter of a mile as I went on up the swamp on the left bank of the Euphrates. The tigris was on my right, and by and by, the two began to prattle down over a hard bottom from higher ground. Only for a little way, though, for here we came to another wide swamp, which the two traversed under low sprouts of swamp maple and birch, the ground having been cut over within a few years. And right here, I ran into a full chorus, a raucous cacophony. A homeric din that sounded as if all the rough-voiced goblins between Blue Hill and the Berkshires were assembled in conversation upstream and had just heard the story, particularly well told. I knew them. They were the wood frogs holding their annual convention. Indeed, in the water all along the marshy margin of the swamp. Once a year, they come down, as people go to the seashore, disporting themselves in the waves and making very merry about it. They were not laughing at me, they were simply shouting their happiness at being thawed out and finding it springtime once more. Their voices, pitched about an octave below middle C, and all on one note, Sounded not unlike a great flock of ducks gabbling wildly, but they are really more nearly musical than that. After the conversation is over, they go back to the woods, where you will find them sitting among the leaves, though you will never see them till they see you. And when you do see them, they are in the air. They have surprisingly long legs and can jump tremendously turning in the air as they go, so that, having landed, their next leap will take them in a new direction. The earth seems to swallow them as they touch it, for their coloration is that of the brown leaves, and they leap from one invisibility to the next. Beyond the frog chorus, I found my stream again, dancing daintily along hemlock-shaded shallows and rippling over slate ledges in the latiste shade of oak and maple twigs, and here another voice called me, a staccato whistle with a suspicion of trill in it now and then, the voice of the very spirit of the spring woodland, the hyla. I have called it a whistle, yet it is hardly that, it is rather the soft, rich tone of a pipe such as Pan might have imitated when he first blew into the hollow reed on the brook margin. He is a shy fellow, this inch-long brown frog that swells his throat till it is like a balloon and pipes forth this mellow note, and he is even more invisible than the wood frog. You may seek him diligently for years and not find him, for his voice is that of a ventriloquist, and he seems to send it hither and thither. It is as if this were a trick of some frisky aerial of the wood that danced about and whistled, now before, and now behind you. When the trill comes in it, you may well think the tricksy spirit is laughing at you so that his voice shakes. It would be no surprise if some trilling note ended in a giggle and Ariel himself should float by you on the mocking air. The great chorus of spring peepers is to come later, now but an occasional one has waked from his frosty nest beneath the woodland leaves and come down to the water margin to sing nor do I know whether it was the ventriloquial call of one that sounded now ahead and now behind, now above and now below, or whether relays of jovial invisible sprites passed me on from pool to pool. What I do know is that a mile or more beyond its outlet, under the ooze of the little bog, I found the source of my Euphrates in springs that boil clear through the sand and send forth the cool, pure water for the delectation of all who will come to drink. Here upon the margin I heard another chorus that repaid me for all the rough laughter of the wood goblin frogs, the plaintive melodies of a little flock of vesper sparrows, newly arrived and very happy about it. These come later than the song sparrows and bring a quality of wistfulness in their song which in this differs from the bluff heartiness of the earlier bird. It is as if their joy in the strong sun and the awakening of creation was tempered and softened to a touch of tears at some gentle remembrance. The Vesper sparrows recall the vanished happiness of past summers in their greeting to that which comes. After that, my way led me home through the purpling woodland towards golden greetings of the sunset. I had tasted to the full the joy of exploration and discovery. I doubt if Humboldt felt any better coming back from his exploration of the sources of the Caspian. My Euphrates I know, my Tigris I have reserved for future, perhaps even greater joy of tracing its source in the mystic depths of, to me, untrodden woodland.